Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is Season 5, where we are going to focus on questions related to American national identity and competing visions for America's future. In this episode, I talk to Matthew Continetti, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He has written a new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matthew discusses today's historical transformation of American conservatism and the future of the Republican Party after Donald Trump. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Matt, to the podcast. Thank you very much for making the time. And I'm really interested to talk to you about your new book. It's called The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Tell me, why did you write this book and why do you think it was important to write this book now? What led me to writing my book was during a period between 2012 and 2016, I began noticing just how different the Republican Party was than the party that I had kind of came of age in and worked as a journalist covering for many years. This puzzle sent me to examine the history of American conservatism and American conservatism's relationship with the Republican Party. And as I researched the history, I found that, one, many people, young people in particular, were completely unaware of this history. And two, the major histories that had been written from a conservative perspective on the conservative movement and the GOP hadn't been updated. They ended prior to certainly the Iraq War uh, in 2003, the financial crisis, the Tea Party, and Trump. And so I felt that it was necessary, almost a calling, to, to write the history of the conservative movement in the full and round from someone who associates himself with conservatism and conservative ideas. It's interesting in the introduction to the book, you do mention this personal connection, which you just mentioned again then, which is that it's not just that this is something you observed from the outside as a scholar or an observer of public life, but you really felt that you were part of this conservative movement that had in some ways changed or been left behind by the new Republican Party after 2012. Why don't you Tell me a little bit more about that. How, how is it that you felt this deep personal connection to this movement? I'd say that, uh, you know, I've spent my life working for center-right publications or institutions. It's been 20 years working as a writer and pundit in the Beltway for me. And um, whether it was through something like National Review, uh, where I had my first internship, which is considered the flagship of the conservative movement, the intellectual conservative movement, or the Weekly Standard, the magazine where I worked for eight and a half years, or the Washington Free Beacon, which is the web publication that I founded in 2012, or now uh, for the past four years at the American Enterprise Institute, I've inhabited this center-right space. I was also connected to the conservative movement while I was still in college. This is my world. (laughs) You know, I had, uh, being part of the Weekly Standard and some My earlier books had, you know, taken a critical eye to aspects of conservatism, certainly aspects of the Republican Party. 
But it was really after 2012 that I, I found that I needed a deeper understanding of the sources of the American conservative movement and its relationship to the Republican Party. And that historical research is what led me to write The Right. Right. And the book does have the subtitle The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. So it does go all the way back to the very early 20th century, maybe even the late 19th century. But it does sound like this pivotal moment. You keep mentioning 2012. Maybe it'd be worth you just describing or discussing for our listeners. What was the sort of pre-2012 status quo in your world of the this corner of the conservative movement in the US and what happened after 2012? What were the signs that you saw that something was changing in a kind of a profound way? Sure. Well, it's back up a little bit. There had always been a populist aspect to American conservatism after the Second World War. And that is something that was visible to anyone who could see. And it was visible also with the rise of Sarah Palin in the 2008 election. I really think the the pivot point would be the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession that followed. That marks the pivot to a world where populism is not simply part of the Republican conservative coalition. It is increasingly the dominant part, if not even the whole, of the Republican conservative coalition. And so in 2012, it was something of an odd year that this GOP, which was increasingly animated by the aspirations and animosities of the Tea Party, uh, nonetheless selected as its presidential nominee Mitt Romney, who is someone who, you know, is not a populist, let us just say. And when he went down and lost to Barack Obama in 2012, I sensed a great disagreement on the right over the cause of that defeat. And on one hand, there were institutions who said that Romney's problem was that he was too conservative, that he wasn't magnanimous enough toward illegal immigrants, he wasn't socially moderate enough on issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. And then there was a different interpretation, mainly from the grassroots and the Tea Party and the populists, which was that Romney was obsolete, that he didn't understand the new politics Uh, that he was too willing to play by the rules. And so you could see it right then in the aftermath of 2012 that there was just this large gap between what Beltway-based Republicans and even conservative intellectual elites believed to be the problem with the Republican coalition and its failure to win majority support and the larger populace of grassroots activists who were increasingly of a national populist bent. So perceiving that disparity is what got me thinking about these issues after 2012. And then, of course, it just became even more visible when Donald Trump entered the presidential politics in 2015. Right, and we'll have to talk about Trump in more detail, but it occurs to me that you said that you founded a new magazine in 2012 or a new publication. Was this in some ways a response to this change in the Republican Party and wanting to address it or write about it from a different angle, or is that just pure coincidence? It's somewhat of a coincidence. Um, The idea behind the Washington Free Beacon was that it would be a source of investigative reporting on the left from a conservative perspective. And the conversations that 
led to its founding really began in 2011. So we launched the Free Beacon, which is now over 10 years old. And so it was kind of before this great divide became visible. But then in my writing for the website, of course, after the 2012 election, I dealt with this topic at length. And you describe the 21st century of American conservatism as a crisis, the crisis of the 21st century. Is American conservatism really in crisis, in your view? Well, it's not just conservatism. I mean, that that chapter heading is actually meant to describe America. Okay. I think America is in deep crisis. Okay. And that crisis became visible with the financial crisis, with the inconclusive results of America's interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then, in particular, during the second Obama administration, we began to see that there was actually a crisis of society uh, when you saw the declines in expected lifespans, the deaths of despair, drug and alcohol addiction rise, the increasing political violence that we see uh, normalized. So, yeah, I, I think that it's not just American conservatism that's in crisis but uh, Republican politics in America as well. This crisis of America, if that we do accept that the country is in some sort of a crisis, is this shift in American conservatism that you felt probably in your own personal life and you've written about in, the, in your book, is that a symptom or cause of the current crisis in American politics and American society? In my view, it's a, a symptom. What we've seen with the rise of national populism on the American right is a consequence of broader social change and economic change. You know, some of these themes were written about by my AEI colleague, Charles Murray, in his 2012 book, Coming Apart, uh, where he talked about kind of the stratification of American society through the frame of education and educational attainment. And I do think that as the Republican Party has become more the party of voters who lack a college degree. And those voters who lack a college degree are finding themselves more and more on the margins of the American workforce, the American culture, a broader society. That has contributed to the change in the nature of the Republican coalition and the nature of, of conservatism. So I think that politics in this sense is downstream of broader cultural and social and economic change. So I guess what you're maybe describing is kind of a transition in American politics that is following from a structural transition in the demography and perhaps the structure of the American economy. And a lot of the, you know, things that you found perplexing or so striking in the change in the tone and the content of rhetoric on the right is perhaps just, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, paraphrasing you incorrectly, but do you think that's just kind of a natural result of parties trying to adapt to the quite profound changes in the structure of society. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a result of the party changing. And and so what I would say is that it used to be that the Republican Party was in many ways the party of um, white professionals living in the suburbs, two-parent families in the suburbs, making good living, probably having a college education, at least one of the adults in the household. And uh, what we found is that a large group of former Democrats who were white voters without college degrees have moved into the Republican Party and in some ways pushed out the, say, the Reagan, George H.W. Bush base, which were the college-educated white voters in the suburbs. 
And so as the Republican Party has become more rural, it's become more Southern and more Midwestern, has become more the party of voters who do not have a four-year college degree. It has reflected values and interests and also, I think, kind of lifestyle of those voters. And so that, that is a change that it, it's been going on for quite some time. And it was visible in the 1960s with the movement of what's called the white working class, though. I think working class is a very slippery category. But the movement of white voters without college degrees into the GOP I mean, Nixon saw it. The Reagan Democrats were part of it. Voters who had moved from supporting Ross Perot in the 1992 presidential election to supporting GOP House candidates in the stunning 1994 victory for the congressional GOP that brought the Republicans to power in the House for the first time in 40 years and elevated Newt Gingrich to the speakership. That was visible. And what, what seemed to have happened is that beginning in the late Bush years and accelerated by the Tea Party by some of Obama's policies, and then by the rise of Trump, you have essentially the GOP as more and more the party of white voters without college degrees. Do you think that transition is a sustainable one for the Republican Party? Because an argument that I hear a lot from the left is that this coalition that the Republicans have put together is one that's shrinking through time, right? Because the ethnic composition of the country is changing and non-white voters growing as a group. The older voters, obviously, through demographic change, there's going to be fewer of these older conservative voters. And essentially, the Republican Party is trying to fight a kind of a rearguard action in defending a shrinking coalition of voters. And then the implication of that is that they start to behave in ways that are not just uh, national populist, as you describe them, but sort of anti-democratic in a way, and anti-majoritarian at least. What do you make of that of that argument? Well, I think that argument would be more persuasive if we haven't seen the gains among non-white voters without college degrees that the Republican Party has enjoyed in recent years. What's interesting is that the education divide is now becoming more important in some areas than older ethnic and even racial divides. And so what we've seen uh, in the, since Trump, since 2016, is the GOP making inroads with Hispanic voters who don't have a four-year college degree. We see the GOP making inroads with Asian American voters, a very small percentage of the electorate, but still cuts against this idea that it's simply just kind of white identity politics powering this phenomenon. So I, I would say it's more that this society is stratifying by education and that also ideology is becoming more important than ethnicity. And so what you find, and you know, David Shore, the, uh, he's a democratic socialist elections analyst, he has pointed this out as well, is that you know, it used to be that even if you were a conservative Hispanic voter, you still overwhelmingly voted for Democrats simply because that was your partisan attachment. Now you find that if you're self-identified conservative, whether you're Hispanic or African-American, you have an increased propensity to vote for Republicans. So that says to me that it's a little bit, it's not quite destined to disappear along with non-college educated white voters, that it's a broader set of kind of, I think, cultural views that is holding this anti-left coalition together. I certainly can follow your logic, but I, I just follow up a 
in one way, which is to ask, yes, it could be that these barriers are sort of decreasing in salience, shall we say, and that the Republican coalition in many areas is becoming more diverse, for example, and the race divide is being eroded in favor of a socioeconomic, perhaps, uh, education divide. But are the numbers of new voters being brought into the Republican coalition through that process enough to offset the losses uh, due to other demographic changes? Because the argument from the left is that, sure, there might be some weakening of these boundaries, there might be more movement in and out of party identification across sort of different dimensions than we'd seen in the past. But if the Republican coalition is still shrinking through time, then the argument from the left would be they're still going to try and push anti-majoritarian, at least in their eyes, anti-democratic policies to try and defend their political power against these changes. So do you think that the shifts are going to be significant enough to offset changes in other areas? Yeah, I mean, I just, I reject that framing. I think what's happening in American politics is that the GOP seemed to be on the precipice of having a national coalition that both maintained the college-educated white voters in the suburbs and combined them with this broader non-college-educated population which disliked the cultural messages and some of the economic messages, frankly, from the Democratic Party. And so you look at something like the 2014 election and you could see that, oh, wow, there's a real majority here in the making. What's upset that coalition is the presence of Trump. Even though Trump has brought in, I think, some of these Hispanic and African-American male voters we've been discussing, he's also repelled the traditional bulwark of the Republican Party, which are those college-educated white voters in the suburbs. And so he hasn't been able, the GOP, since the 2016 election, has had this very kind of mixed results, mainly defeats, right? Losing the House in 2018, losing everything in 2020, barely getting the House back in 2022, mainly as a result of Trump and the suburban rejection of Trump. I think if the GOP were somehow able to move beyond Trump, it could pretty quickly get back to its 2014 potential, all of which is to say, I don't think that the pool of Republican voters is destined to shrink and vanish. So I guess my general view is that demographic arguments should be taken with a heavy dose of salt. And I'm more of, I guess, as an analyst of politics, I kind of look more at the role that ideas play and conditions play, social conditions play. Yeah, and that becomes clear in the book. Uh, You focus a lot on changes in ideas, and that's something I want to talk to you a little bit more about in a second, about some of these broad themes. But I would like to dwell on these changes in the GOP and for a little while longer and ask you, can this shift to national populism, as you call it, by the GOP be separated from personalism and a personal affiliation to Donald Trump? Because you say that this shift to national populism and perhaps a new coalition between traditional, more well-educated, urban white voters, plus these new groups of lower educated, sort of, I guess, class-based rather than ethnicity-based coalition, that that is there, that it emerged, that it was kind of swamped by the Trump personalist move. But another way of viewing this is that, in fact, what happened was that Donald Trump 
made a very personal appeal to right-wing voters that is very intrinsically linked to him as a person and that that's what transformed the Republican Party, not these other more structural trends that you describe and that this stands and falls with Trump. How do you separate those things? How do you separate his populism or this popular appeal of this person, Donald Trump, from these other trends? Sure. I mean, I think I do that just through my historical research because the Trump worldview is not actually unique to him. You see it with, in some respects, in in its anti-elitist respect, with George Wallace in 1968. You certainly see it in its political economy aspect with Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan in the 1990s. And in its uh, foreign policy aspect, you see it with Ron Paul and Rand Paul in the first decade of the 21st century. So uh, that element of the American right has been there all along. What made Trump unique was his celebrity was able to elevate all these ideas to the point where they could take over the GOP structure. So I believe you're correct to suggest that his celebrity is a major factor in his rise. But I also think what Trump essentially did was bulldoze all of the limits and constraints that the GOP as an institution had put on the populism of Patrick Buchanan, of Ross Perot, of Ron and Rand Paul. And once he elevated to the presidency, well, then, I mean, he changed everything because, you know, it's the presidency. So you're the leader of the party. You're also the leader of the country. And things just begin to shift around you. I believe we're still in the Trump era. That's the title of the afterword I wrote for the paperback edition of The Right that's out But I do think, though, that it's a longer-term process. He catalyzed and also accelerated trends that had been there, whether it's on the electoral base of the GOP or the ideological nature of the GOP. And that's what made him so important. I would almost also add to that that based on a lot of the arguments you're making about structural trends in the economy and demographics and things, that it's not just that his celebrity bulldozed a lot of previous obstacles and institutions. It's that, A, they'd been bulldozed before him by this Tea Party movement that itself had arisen through these uh, structural changes in the economy, yes, like, yeah, the, the, like the financial out, right. crisis, right? So so the I would say that a lot of the ground on the institutional level was probably prepared for him by the Tea Party and their affiliated actors like the new media on the right and on social media and all these things, and he was able to exploit those things given yes, his celebrity. The only thing I would add to that, though, is it wasn't quite clear whether he would fully take them over. And I'm talking here about whether it's the Tea Party groups or the new conservative media of talk radio and the internet, until he won the Republican nomination. So when he first appeared on the scene, as you will recall, there were a lot of arguments about, oh, well, Trump's not a real conservative, right? Is he really a small government guy? Is he really a social conservative? What, you know, his foreign policy is not what we're used to. And so there was something of a ambivalence and in some quarters in opposition to Trump. And of course, his number, the man who came in second place, Ted Cruz, is someone who was more in the tradition of combining populism with conservative politics and policies. But once he wins the nomination, then that whole infrastructure you describe 
turns around and begins supporting him, which they do to this day. And so that that was something I think we should at least recognize that it was kind of an open question, actually. And I do believe that if Trump had lost the election, if he had not won his electoral college majority, the right today would look different than it does. But you learn, as you know, as you study history, is the role of contingency. And that's not the that's not the world we live in. And agency too, right? That once he had this uh, position of power, Trump was able to do things that he would not have able, been able to do if he had not won the presidency. Yeah. Now, that's a great point. I just want to dilate on it for a moment because he did two things that I think created the GOP we have today. The first is that he actually did deliver on his promises to the more traditional elements in the GOP. Right, and one of the aspects of the book that I found actually very interesting was how you discuss how Trump didn't actually come from nowhere, but before his candidacy for years had been cultivating ties to groups like the Federalist Society, and you mentioned some others, to at least lay some sort of groundwork for a coalition should he win the presidency. That's right. And so whether it was the Federalist Society and judges or whether it was the NRA and opposing gun restrictions, whether it was the tax cut lobby, right, um, in, in, in putting out that big tax cut as his major do- domestic, in some ways his only domestic legislative accomplishment, he satisfied the agendas of longer, of older rather, conservative groups. So that held his coalition together. That the Many older Republicans, say, who were more used to the Reagan Republican vision, they supported Trump throughout his presidency because he was basically doing what they've always wanted to do. On the other hand, though, once he's in office, he continues his habit of subverting norms and basically cheapening public discourse. And that just grew in intensity. And I guess as an analyst, I didn't quite realize heading into the Trump presidency, how that second element of Trumpism, the rage against restraint, the uh, ability to transgress what we thought were the bounds of political speech, the willingness to challenge the system in a truly radical way, that would actually become more important than appointing the judges <laughs> and um, you know resisting the Mansion Toomey bill on guns or you know passing a tax cut. So that when you look at the Republican Party today, I had thought, oh well, you know, if Trump is no longer president, it's kind of the old school Republican buttoned down habits would return. And they haven't. And I think that was clear at this first presidential debate for the GOP nomination in 2024, which just recently happened and and where Trump was not present. But you could even see the degree to which the party had changed there, because time was not long ago, a decade ago, that Republicans would, you know, kind of state their disagreements or whatever. Maybe there'd be one eccentric person, but they were the boring party. That was the whole point of the Republican Party is that it's boring. Today it's not, <laughs> and and this most recent debate uh, resembled uh, a UFC cage fight, and of course that is the Trump ethos and the Trump aesthetic at work. I'm glad you brought this up because another concern among many that, given recent events, I share to some extent is this idea that Donald Trump was and is a threat to democracy in the United States, and he just yesterday, I believe 
appeared at a courthouse in Georgia related to these charges of trying to subvert the counting of the vote and the process after the 2020 election. Is that something that the GOP can get past these concerns or that the Trump really was or is a threat to American democracy? How seriously is the party taking it? And is this something that, that they can move past? We have to be specific when we say the threat to democracy. And, and so uh, certainly I would count trying to subvert an election <laughs> and sending supporters to march on the another branch of government as a threat to democracy. And that, of course, you know, not everyone on the right feels that way, but that is how I feel. That, I think, is unique to Trump. At least I like to hope that it's unique to Trump. And so what it means is that for the next few years, one must be extremely vigilant that it can't happen again. And one must be prepared for Trump to reject the results of an election that he loses, whether that's the Republican primary for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to be losing it anytime soon, or a general election where he's one of the two major party nominees. How one does that, of course, that's a policy question. And, you know, I mean, I think the Electoral Count Act, which was included in last year's omnibus bill, is is a good start. I think trying to limit the ability of secretaries of state to overrule the electors of that state uh, is important. That's one question. There's another broader set of questions that tend to be lumped over as threats to democracy, which might include, say, imposing photo ID as a condition of voting. Yes. And as someone who calls who identifies as a conservative, I don't actually think that's the main threat to democracy. I think the main threat to democracy is Trump and his unwillingness to accept loss. He just will never admit to losing. And so we have to defend against that. I do worry, and I will say this, that because of Trump's influence and his, his stature, there are intellectual elements on the right who are becoming much more interested in, if not anti-democratic, at least authoritarian adjacent politics. They're coming from different perspectives. Some of it is coming from Catholic intellectuals who reject modernity, who reject the Vatican II, who really reject the church's relationship to what it calls Americanism (laughs) for the last hundred years, right? So some of it's coming from there. Other parts of it are coming from groups of intellectuals who consider themselves patriots, but who also think that America is completely lost and, and that essentially we need to start over with some sort of strongman. Then it's coming from people who think that, you know, Vladimir Putin is some sort of traditionalist stalwart and, you know, he has something to teach us or that his epigony, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary has something to teach us. You know, this small country that's, I think, about the size of North Carolina and population is somehow a model for a nation of 330 million people. So those intellectual tendencies, those are threats to conservatism's acknowledgement of democracy and, and reconciliation with democracy. And I will say that that's become of great interest to me since I wrote my book and since I've updated it for the paperback. Have any of those people who are associated, especially with the lionization of Putin on the right, and I think you mentioned Christopher Caldwell in the book as the one specific example I think you give, have they recanted this since the invasion of Ukraine and especially since some of the war crimes that have occurred over there and 
in these sorts of events has there been a, has there been a quiet walking back of the support for Putin since the Ukraine invasion to the contrary there has Christopher Caldwell who I consider a friend and who I've known for 20 years he is an opponent of American aid to Ukraine and believes that American foreign policy is responsible for the war there I disagree with him but you uh, can Tucker disagree Carlson. with um, certain aspects of American foreign policy in Ukraine without supporting Putin I mean it, if there are different logics to being skeptical about sure. a certain I mean, degree of support for Ukraine, but if the if the argument is, oh, what Putin does is good, therefore anything that resists that is bad, that seems to me like a different type of... Yeah, I don't think if Chris were here, and I'm not speaking for him, I don't think that's quite his argument. It's, none of these figures will say that they support Vladimir Putin. Tucker Carlson won't say that he supports Vladimir Putin, and yet operationally he defends him. And then you'll also see people who say, well... What's so wrong with Putin's Russia anyway? There's no LGBT rights there. You'll see that from very hardcore traditionalists on the right. Republican voters, and we always have to distinguish between conservative intellectuals and Republican voters because they're two different things. Right. This is, yeah, very important. I don't think Republican voters are supportive of Putin. But they are becoming more skeptical of American involvement with Ukraine. Right. Right. But again, they they could have many different reasons. And the intellectuals seize on that to somehow amplify their apologies for what Putin represents and what he's up to. Right, and I'm glad you mentioned voters because I I can't really imagine that there's many American voters who support this kind of theocracy, light, strongman regime that some of these right-wing conservative intellectuals that you describe are touting. How seriously should we really take these sorts of arguments. I mean, obviously there were and there are intellectual supports to any authoritarian regime, but in the absence of a strong man, it seems to me that these are relatively obscure intellectual currents that don't cut through. I can only presume don't cut through to regular voters or even to a majority of elected representatives. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I will say that these arguments do have an appeal to younger voters and to the degree that younger voters become older voters. Um, That's worrisome. I would also say, too, I mean, yeah, there's no constituency for Putin in America. There is a constituency for Donald Trump. And even though we have to think in terms of, you know, concentric circles here, even though if you voted for Trump, that doesn't mean that you want Trump to be somehow an authoritarian leader of the United States. There is a smaller group, there's a smaller circle, who would be fine with Trump as the authoritarian leader of the United States. There's probably also a small circle that would be fine with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or uh, Joe sure. Biden as authoritarian leader of That's the United right. States. That's right, and we see, that, we see that in some surveys with increasing distrust of democracy among Americans, which is an alarming trend in my view. So that's why I think we should at least acknowledge these arguments and kind of follow them, even if they don't seem to have, bear much relation to actual American politics, which I agree, they don't. I mean, it's very interesting to me to just read all the intellectual work that's being done by thinkers who want to turn the Republican Party into some sort of national populist behemoth that is, you know, pulling up the drawbridge to Fortress America, cutting off all immigration, instituting some sort of industrial policy where we pick and choose which industries we're going to subsidize and send funds to the Rust Belt. And 
So there's a lot of intellectual work being done there, but actual American voters or their elected representatives, with a few exceptions, have no interest in it. They are just much more in the tradition of one, either Republican kind of, you know, business market oriented politics or the folk libertarianism, which informs so much of the cultural populism of the GOP. And just one example of this briefly is, you know, this hit song, Rich Men North of Richmond. I don't know if you heard of it. It's a written uh, by this young man who, you know, he's an out of work minor, I think. Uh, His name is Oliver Anthony. And what's fascinating is his song has kind of become an anthem of the populist right. And yet these kind of new right proto-authoritarian intellectuals were just shocked and alarmed when someone took time to interview Oliver Anthony. And he was like, well, no, I don't want Washington, D.C. coming in and telling me what to do. And, uh, <laughs> and then he's like, our, our diversity is great in America. You know, so he, I see. he himself is much more just authentically American, right? He doesn't like the central government. Well, no American likes the central government. <laughs> you know, he thinks that welfare recipients should work. Well, most people think welfare recipients should work. So he's not willing to sign on to Victor Orban's family policy because it just kind of seems to him, and of course he wasn't asked about this specifically, I'm paraphrasing, because based on my own experiences with Republican voters or conservative, it just seems to him that's to be not American. Americans have a deeply ingrained distrust of central government, which extends to a government managed by the conservatives or republicans right this is something that you know the subtitle of your book is a hundred years of um american conservatism and this is something that i found so interesting is that you do try and set it apart from british conservatism right there's no discussion really of edmund burke at any extent and to the extent that you discuss these sorts of continental or british conservative thinkers it's always their impact on americans and yet at the end of the book where we arrive where we are today, there's this significant influence from Central European governments. Obviously, Viktor Orban plays a big role, but there's also the government in Poland that's a relatively conservative, populist government. You don't think that this continental influence is going to have a lasting impact on American conservatism? Well, it could. I mean, uh, it's possible. Like I say, you know, we have new people entering our politics every every year. And these young people today are intrigued by many of the ideas they encounter online, which are infused with the more European blood and soil thrown and altar conservatism. That is not American conservatism. It's just not. And because we don't have that. We don't have a throne <laughs> to to defend. We don't have an established church to uphold. And we don't have a titled nobility. I love the line that uh, the, the success of the American class system is the fact that no one acknowledges its existence, right? I mean, we we do have classes here. There we have social classes. And it's disturbing to me that it may be inherited increasingly and we're, there's a lack of social mobility. But that doesn't mean that we have these the refined and molded over ages class systems that you would find in Europe, for example, or in other societies. So... We have to ask ourselves, what's special about American conservatism? And what's special, in my view, is its commitment to the ideas and institutions of the American founding, which presuppose a large degree of individual liberty and always have, and decentralized government. I think it would be a great loss if 
American conservatives somehow reject their own American inheritance for these non-American traditions. And I also think, by the way, if the Republican Party were to do that, which I don't really see it doing it any time soon, but if the Republican Party were to do that, to reject what's American and American conservatism, it would be an electoral disaster because you would think that self-described nationalists would have more appreciation for what makes this nation, America, right. unique. There's and, a deep irony that the new populist you know, and, nationalists want to get their ideas from Hungary of all yeah, right. places. No, they're quite international in their yes, outlook. Very. Uh, you know, but in truth, we are, I happen to believe in American exceptionalism. And I think what one of, one of the aspects of American exceptionalism is a devotion to a quite large degree of individual liberty as well as the American idea that you can show up here with nothing and make something for yourself and your family. I would not be part of a conservatism that rejects those two ideas. So where does American conservatism go from here? Do you think that everything hinges for the next five years on whether Trump wins the presidency next year, the Republican nomination in the presidency? Does that kind of, as you said, throw this kind of populist, his personal element into this Republican coalition and and muddy the waters go for the foreseeable f- future, or is that not as decisive as it might appear at first? Well, I certainly think it means a lot whether Trump becomes the Republican nominee facing four criminal trials, and if you know, it matters a lot if Trump becomes the president of the United States. We've lived through a Trump presidency. We have some idea of what it looks like. You know, it's kind of a mess. And it's one that really torques up the already simmering tensions in America. And it's one that also kind of rattles the structure of international politics as well. Even if in the first term, not much transformative happened in the realm of foreign policy. I was struck at the debate of the Republicans presidential candidates the other night. It's clear that Trump wasn't on stage, and it kind of provided a window into what a world without Trump might look like. And the first thing you see is that his influence will be felt for a generation. The party will reflect and him in this for a while in the same way that the GOP reflected Reagan, even if it didn't always follow Reagan's ideas or no one ever captured Reagan's personal qualities and combination of skills, the GOP will be changed as a result of Trump. But I also think that it will be a, there's the potential that what's left behind is more policy-based than personality-based. And it was just amazing to me at this debate the other night that there were several exchanges on abortion policy, on immigration, on foreign policy that were reasoned debates and not just the Trump machismo that overpowers everything. I think that's a great note to finish on, Matt. Thank you very much. But we do actually ask all of our guests one final question, which I don't want to blindside you. It's a very simple question. Our question is, um, do you have a book or a journal article or a movie or a podcast or a documentary or anything that you would recommend to our listeners who are interested in not only American politics and American political thought, but also in themes related to civil discourse and debate? Sure. I would recommend a book by the columnist George F. Will, 
called The Conservative Sensibility. Uh, it was published in 2019. It's a big book, but it's a great book, and it's also very easy to read. He's a very skilled writer. And it, um, I think, makes a great case for what's distinctively American about American conservatism. You also learn something about how to argue civilly and how to appreciate American history. All right, George Will's Conservative Sensibility. Thank you very much, Matthew Continetti. Thank you. Thank you.